Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah and as always I am joined by Andrew and Hugh. Now you're listening to one of three mini Exocasts which we will release this month, so if you haven't already heard them, keep an ear out for our chat with Dr. Sarah Casewell on Exocast 44B and for our discussion asking the question, can we image the surface of an exoplanet in Exocast 44C? But coming up on this episode, we're going to give a brief rundown of some of the newsworthy publications from the last month. So Andrew, why don't you kick us off? Thanks, Hannah, and uh, and welcome to the news desk. Uh, we're going to start off with a bit of a, an unusual paper to uh, to kick us off from Raphael Graton and team. Uh, they searched through four years of infrared sphere data, and the sphere is the the spectropolarimic high contrast imager. Uh, and that's on ESO's VLT, uh, and it was part of the SHINE survey. So we're looking through four years of this data to see if they could provide the first optical counterpart or optical confirmation of a radio velocity planet. And they wanted to see if they could pick out the recently discovered uh, Proxima Centauri C, which is a uh, you know, neighbor to the maybe much more popular and well-known Proxima Cent B. Now, this planet is uh, is recently discovered. It's about super-Earth mass, um, and it has a large separation from the star, which uh, at about 1.4 AU, I think, which made it potentially in range of this instrument for being able to, to pick it out. Um, but uh, a spoiler, and as they said in their paper, a direct quote, they did not obtain a clear detection of this planet. So their best signal had a pretty low signal-to-noise and an astrometric uh, signal inconsistent with that of Proxima. So they might not even be looking at the actual star itself. Uh, so they couldn't be confident that what they saw was was actually proximacy um, and of course with anything that that has a kind of non-detection like this they urge more observations uh, to, to see if that the the signal they did detect is in fact proxima sen or something else so we might be reporting uh, on this paper in a, in a few more months to see you know how, how that story uh, works out yeah so th- i mean this is a small planet on around a really small star so there's going to be a i i highly doubt that such a signal would ever be detectable in archival imagery because it's like you know the reflection you should get from this star is so small or from this planet is so small and it's going to be cold as well so there's not going to be any thermal emission in that that wavelength either so there was really kind of a shot in the dark as to whether they might find anything and it looks like no but um you was know, sphere the best the best shout, shot do you think is there an instrument that could do this better sphere and sphere is one of the best ones that can be used for this yeah uh, i think next the- generation i guess the next generation might have an opportunity, but again, all of those things that Hugh just said, it's really cold, it's really distant, it's not going to have a huge amount of light coming from it. I, it's interesting because the the way that it has been received on social media is, is very much the opposite, and it's not clear from the way that it's been quoted that this is a non-detection. So I, yeah. I, I found that that... Reading the paper was very enlightening in this case. and I, I For once, the paper was extremely kind of exactly. conservative. Yeah. I highly encourage people to go onto archive and read it if they do, because the the, the social media or, or media reports have been a wow. lot less hand-waving. Yeah, as I said, you know, there was a direct quote. They did not obtain a clear detection. They were very clear about that. So, um, you know, I don't know where they're picking that up from. But anyway, here's, a, here's another paper with a very attention-grabbing title. And this is a direct quote. WASP-4 is accelerating towards the Earth. 
uh, which <laughs> are you know, we sounds die, pretty Andrew? scary. Yeah, and we, we better get out the way, I guess. Well, it's, it's, it's less dire than it sounds, but it is uh, nevertheless still interesting. And it appears that over 12 years of transit timing measurements, the orbital period of the hot Jupiter-WASP-4b appears to be decreasing on the order of uh, about 8 milliseconds per year. Now, theories abound uh, about the cause of this uh, of this uh, acceleration, including, you know, tidal orbital decay of the planet itself and, and apsidal precession. Um, but equipped with new radial velocity and speckle imaging data, Luke Buoma and team uh, found that the WASP-4 system is actually accelerating towards the sun uh, very slowly, I might add, at something like four centimeters per, per, per second per day, uh, which is which is pretty slow, uh, and that the observed change in the planet's transit timing is likely caused by this uh, acceleration, which is directly along our line of sight. Um, so it might you know, have made it look like it was maybe an orbital decay of the planet itself. Um, now, what is causing that acceleration? You know, just because we found that it's maybe not the planet, it doesn't necessarily solve what the what the uh, what the cause of this was. And the authors posit that the that this acceleration is caused by a big old tens of hundreds of times Jupiter-sized companion at a very wide separation, um, and also suggest that WASP-4b might not be the only hot Jupiter out there that could be subject to this effect. Because we know that there's um you know we know the statistics about hot Jupiter companions now, so there might be more of these uh, of these kind of systems out there. Uh, Hannah, do you have any take on that? Yeah, I mean, we see this a similar kind of system where we're trying to understand it a bit more with WASP-12. WASP-12 is appears to be on this decaying orbit, much, much slower than WASP-4b. But some of the theories that they posit in here could be applied to the M-star companions that orbit the star WASP-12. So WASP-12 is a triple star system where the planet orbits one star, but there is a double M-star system that also orbits that star. So that could also be having a very similar effect where it's it's this pull that we're seeing this acceleration but it's uh I, the wasp 4 paper i found the title very uh jarring and then read the paper and it's it's got it's 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 complex this isn't an easy problem to solve so i i wonder if they were trying to add some whimsy to it perhaps <laughs> yes yeah, so like i said very attention grabbing it certainly made me made me want to read to the conclusions, at least, to see if we had to get out of the way. No, I think we're okay. Okay, next up, uh, Paul Delbert and a large gang of very notable folks, including many Exocast guests like Stephen Kane and Paul Robertson, and of course our very own indomitable Hugh Osborne, uh, report the discovery of a warm sub-Saturn mass planet from the joint TESS uh, Keck survey. So regular listeners and exoplanet geeks will recall this is a pretty underrepresented class of planet, and we like to get excited about those. So I'm not going to go on too much more about it. I'm going to throw it over to our expert Hugh to tell us a little bit more. Sure. So, yeah, this was quite an interesting one. So I'm part of this TESS working group to find single transits. So planets on long periods where uh, you only see one transit in the light curve, because uh, unlike for these short period objects which come around multiple times, you know, the, the orbit is longer than the, the time we're observing. So um, so this was a really nice candidate. It was about 0.6% around a bright star. The, the, so the depth of the transit was about 0.6%, which worked out as about 9 Earth radii and you know giant planets tend to be quite easy to to find in, in radial velocity so we we did some very Paul, Paul led a, uh, a radial velocity campaign to get some follow-up and to figure out the the orbit because once when you only have one transit of these planets you don't know the orbital period uh, you don't know when it's going to come back um, but once we got radial velocity it was quite a strange thing because it suggested a, sh- a shorter period than than we expected, given what you know the light curve we had from TESS, and actually it turns out that um, we just missed another transit in the TESS data. And in fact, it's actually in the TESS data. But what happens is the pipeline cut it out because it's during this period where there was a lot of scattered light. 
But if you go in and dig into the raw data where the the pipeline hasn't cut the data yet, then then you actually find there's a transit signal in there if you kind of treat it very very carefully. And once you have the two conditioning light curve, right? Yeah, That's what they said. Yeah, so it's so once you have two transits, you know the period, and and so um, you know then we then then effectively this this planet was confirmed. Um, but it's yeah, it's quite interesting that this is one of one of those weird cases where a single transit turned into a double transit uh, by accident almost. But it seems like a fascinating planet, you know, low, uh, you know, 87% the radius of Jupiter, but a mass less than Saturn at about a quarter that of Jupiter. I think uh, so. And also, you know, it has a low surface gravity and a, and a pretty low incident stellar flux. So maybe a really cool planet to follow up with some transmission spectroscopy yeah. in the future. I mean, these giant planets, they, there's basically such a huge range of mass for about the same like radius. So anything between like nine and 10 Earth radii could be... 30 earth masses and could be 1000 so it's especially for colder bodies like this one there's basically this degenerate region where um we don't we don't have we have no a priori knowledge of the mass until we observe it with radial velocity because it's so kind of varied out there Cool. Well, uh, sticking with the, the theme of poorly understood things, uh, planetary interiors are very tricky to observe. And if you're, if you're wondering, uh, if you want to know a little bit more about that, you can check out our, our conversation, uh, in Exocast 44C this month. Um, you know, it's even tricky to observe them in our own solar system and for our own planet, uh, for that matter, which is why an exciting new discovery from David Armstrong and crew, which again includes Dr. Osborne, he's been very busy this month, uh, is due to be published in Nature. Uh, so this is a TOI849B. Uh, which was found with TESS, given its designation, but also had some follow-up from HARPS, NGTS, Las Cumbres. Um, TOI-849b is the remnant core of a giant planet. It has a relatively small radius, uh, less than that of Neptune, about three and a half Earths, but a mass of 40 Earth masses, suggesting actually a very Earth-like, almost identically Earth-like, 5.5 grams per centimeter cubed density. So it's an extraordinary object, and I'm not going to go on about it because we have the expert uh, on the team right here. So Hugh, tell us a, a little bit more about this, uh, this super exciting discovery. So this is quite a cool planet because it exists right in the middle of this thing called the Neptune Desert. So this is like this region of parameter space between about two and ten Earth radii, very close to it, their stars, where we don't find planets. We don't find planets that are like Neptune-sized, so four Earth radii, that are extremely close to their stars. And that's basically usually because um, you either have a big, massive, giant planet, that hot Jupiter, that has enough gravity to hold on to its kind of thick, gassy hydrogen helium envelope, or you have something in the middle, you know, a Neptune-sized object, which is um, maybe maybe 20, 30 Earth masses with a large amount of hydrogen and helium. And all of that hydrogen and helium, because it's a smaller object, gets evaporated away very quickly by the star. And so you're left with just the core of this planet, which is, you know, the core of a Neptune is, is going to look something like a super-Earth. It's going to be uh, 1.5, 1.8 Earth radii, and it's going to be a few Earth masses, usually. Um, so what we what this what we kind of have this harps time to go looking for these evaporated planets because once you've evaporated away all of the hydrogen helium, so for like planets two or three Earth radii close in around bright stars, then you you get to some handle on what the composition of the core is of that you know what what used to be a Neptune, and that's kind of interesting because we don't know much when we look at you know the the giant planets in our solar system we don't know much about what the cores look like. Um, but in this case, we found, yeah, so as you said, a, a planet slightly smaller than Neptune, but about two times the mass of Neptune. So something far more massive than we've ever found at that kind of 
um, orbital period. Um, so something like 40 times the mass of Earth. And that means, I mean, it still has a bit of gas on it. Um, so, but it's about 99% core. So there's like 39.5 Earth masses of core and 0.5 Earth masses of hydrogen. And that's something that's really difficult to kind of explain because, you know, anything with a 40 Earth mass core should be a Jupiter. You know, we think that's even Jupiter itself probably has a core that's only 10 or 20 Earth masses. So how something that's that massive doesn't have a big atmosphere is the kind of weird bit about about TOI 849b. Uh, and the, the explanations that we kind of came up with was like maybe there were two kind of proto-gas giants which collided and that, that collision threw out the gas and only left the kind of the core of, of um, a very dense material and a bit of gas. Or maybe there was something that happened during the formation of this planet which was weird, which meant that it, it was starved of gas and so it accreted a big rocky core but never managed to kind of grow to become a hot Jupiter. Or, yeah, Jupiter. But honestly, we don't really know yet. So we, again, um, it's it's an oddball case where we, we can't quite explain how this formed, but it's a cool one. In terms of the formation there, it really comes down to those timelines, doesn't it, within the disk and whether we can understand those timelines. So would you say that more observations from things like ALMA about disks and disk lifetimes and understanding whether you can form a rock this large and the gas has already been depleted from the disk so that it can't accumulate that gas is that something that would be really useful in this kind of investigation i don't know because that's all down to the timeline of it needed to form this much from a solid but the gas has to have gone by that point so it either took too long to form its its solid core but like you said that's a huge core how quickly does that happen and the problem is that 99.9% of cases it doesn't happen like that because we exactly. have we don't have systems like this. I think these oddball cases are just almost not going to be explainable until we have more of them, right? Until we have a statistical population and we can figure out what's weird about those systems compared to the rest. So I, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I loved all of the different ideas that kind of postulated to try and explain why it might be the case because each of the ideas that are put forward and the ones that you just mentioned have their own observational avenues where we can start to try and understand this. So for those collisional induced ones, there's a lot of theoretical work being done about putting a planet together with some atmosphere on it and colliding them and seeing how much of the atmosphere is stripped and how much is remaining on either the thing that collided with it or the the material that was left in in the first place and those kinds of simulations those n-body simulations where you've got hundreds of particles that you're assuming are over the core of the planet or a mantle or an atmosphere are really important to try and understand this so it brings together a lot of theoretical work that's being done and observational work where we need that essentially WFIRST survey where we can get an idea of the actual distribution of planets in our galaxy yeah good work team And finally, for discovery papers for this month, a once false positive planet detection is false no more, uh, as Andrew Vandenberg and team uh, report the rescue of Kepler-1649c from the overzealous Kepler pipeline by, uh, and I quote, visual inspection, which shows that sometimes you just can't replicate the human penchant for pattern recognition, no matter how good your data pipeline is. So the planet itself that they discovered, it was actually in very early Kepler data, um, is superficially very Earth-like, you know, 6% greater radius and an equilibrium temperature, you know, maybe in the in the 250 Kelvin range, uh, putting it within the habitable zone. So, you know, welcome to the club, Kepler 49, uh, 1649C. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, it's good to have you and pleased we found you in the end. 
Okay, uh, a very interesting paper on the first measurement of the wind speed of a brown dwarf appeared in Science this month, which was very cool. Uh, the exometeorologists were led by Caitlin Allers and used data from the late Spitler, Spitzer Space Telescope. Uh, now, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, we also talked about it in this month's uh, kind of discussion uh, section, so, so check out that mini episode. But they, they employed a technique that compared the, um, the rotational period of this brown dwarf in the infrared. And now that infrared signal, as, as Hannah said in, in, that, in that section, comes kind of from the upper atmosphere. Uh, and they compared that rotational signal with the, with the radio uh, kind of portion of the EM spectrum, which reflects more of the interior. And now they, they deduced from the difference between the atmosphere and the interior that there's a, as they put it, strong wind. Now, this is a 650 meters per second wind, so that might be a bit of an understatement. It's a hella strong wind, uh, and it's going eastward. So the hypothesized cause of those those incredibly powerful eastward winds are, you know, maybe an atmospheric jet stream or maybe a very low frictional drag at the bottom of the atmosphere or, you know, if you want to call it the surface or the boundary layer or whatever, um, you know, which is really forcing forcing those winds over. So this fits in very nicely with our discussion uh, this month about being able to disentangle different parts of the of the planet in terms of, you know, the atmosphere and the interior using different uh, different wavelengths. So Hannah, do you have anything else to add on this apart from you know maybe saying how cool it is? Or? <laughs> no, this is a really exciting measurement. A lot of the things that we talk about on this show have originated in detections on brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs are really this amazing laboratory that we can use to understand different processes that are happening because we're able to measure the light directly from those worlds. And they range in size from the heaviest and largest of exoplanets all the way up to stars so they they cover this massive phase space where we can get huge amounts of information and if you listen to exocast 44b where we talk to dr sarah casewell you'll, you'll hear a lot more about what we can learn from brown dwarfs that are orbiting stars compared to this one which is a free-floating brown dwarf and i think it's really great to see these different techniques being developed on things that we will then i imagine later apply and try and understand with as we go smaller, smaller regimes. Yeah. Uh, just to put the things in context, that speed, it's about uh, 2,300 kilometers per hour, <laughs> or if you're an imperialist, uh, 1,425 miles per hour, which is about 300 kilometers faster than the winds in the uh, atmosphere of Neptune, which are the fastest recorded in our solar system. So this is, you know, pretty, pretty intense wind. Yeah. And a really cool discovery. Yeah. So uh, to Venus now, uh, and a study from Cedric Gilman and others in Nature suggests that due to uh, our neighboring planet's very different tectonic evolution, that is to say, you know, unlike the Earth with our wonderful mobile plates and subduction zones of volcanoes, uh, Venus's crust is more of a stagnant lid. And that's actual geophysical jargon right there. <laughs> but it's also very descriptive of, of kind of what that crust is like. You know, very little exchange is kind of this lid that sits over the mantle, doesn't let anything out. So... Bearing in mind those differences, um, the current atmosphere of Venus, so says uh, Cedric Gilman and others, is kind of incompatible with the idea that very early on in our solar system's history, the inner planets were bombarded with water-rich asteroids, which you know delivered most of our water. You know, the the, the inner solar system planets' water is is the theory behind this. You know, Sean Raymond and others. Sean Raymond actually on this on this paper as well. Uh, still still, uh, still working in this really interesting topic. So the team suggests that any material that then made it to Venus and Earth was already dry, and that most of our water therefore had to be present on or in the Earth and on or in Venus since its formation. So another interesting take on this kind of where did Earth's water come from debate, which we definitely covered on the show before, and I don't think it will probably be, be the last that we hear about it. 
Is is this kind of building on the idea that the late heavy bombardment is like not true, or is this another kind of separate bit of evidence? I think there's there's still the idea that there is this uh, chaotic collisional period, uh, you know, about 500 million years after the formation of the planet. But the 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 objects that were delivered, the asteroidal material, was drier than we originally thought. You know, we always thought that that was potentially a way that a lot of the the volatiles that were delivered to the inner solar system originated, because in theory we shouldn't be able to form a planet this close with you know with the amount of water that we had. Mm. So, you know, it was suggested that that's already dry and maybe adds a little bit of confusion as to where it could have come from then, because we assumed that that came from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, which is pretty icy. So again, uh, you know, I think it's just going to add add to that debate and it hasn't necessarily settled yet, yet. And also, to be honest, we don't know really enough about the geological history of Venus to say that just because it's in a stagnant lid regime now, that it didn't have some some sort of analogous plate tectonic mode earlier on when maybe the crust was more hydrated than it is now. So, you know, we're looking at a snapshot of Venus as it is presently and saying, well, you know, the the, the amount of, of stuff in its atmosphere is inconsistent with having all that water delivered early on. But to be honest, we don't really know, uh, you know, how, how the planet has evolved over that time. But still an interesting take, I think. Okay, another interesting paper this month uh, entitled Molecular Cross-Sections for High-Resolution Spectroscopy might not make the headlines, but are nonetheless very important type of papers for the study of, of exoplanet atmospheres, um, yeah, particularly hot Jupiters at the moment. So I'm going to throw it over, Hannah, to, to quick uh, give us a quick summary of this paper. Yeah, so this paper is taking line lists, so we talked about line lists before, which are lists of the spectral energies of molecules as a function of wavelength, or really they're in as a function of wave number, which is the inverse wavelength. And they use those spectral energies for all of these different kind of modes that you get as an atom vibrates or rotates. And they use them to compute the cross-section of those molecules. And they do that over a grid of temperatures. So what this team is doing is they're taking the line lists that are provided by high temp, exomol, and, and others that we've talked about on this show, and they're computing for you based on those which have millions and millions and millions of lines, models which give you the cross-sections of those. And they're doing that over a grid uh, of different temperatures. And these cross-section grids also include the temperature and pressure broadening that those molecules, those lines that we're seeing would experience that we would then be able to measure. So... It's another case of where a team has gone, we have computed for this for you because it takes a really long time and it's not as easy as it sounds so that you don't have to. So there's a new... Yeah, it's a nice, a nice community paper, right? Yeah, so there's a new grid that you can now access. It's open source, which will give you those cross sections so you don't have to compute them from those line lists. Now, they are, of course, done over certain temperatures for certain specific atmospheres. But then they 500 take 500 to 1500 Kelvin. Yeah, so they so. take them further in this paper and they use them and they show the show how you can use them to model an atmosphere in both transmission and emission. And they do that by fitting a series of previously published molecular detections from high resolution spectroscopy. So they're showing that this comp- pre-computed cross-section grid that they they are producing for you is very functional and that's really useful way of showing here's something that we've created let's show you that it can be used and it's simpler for you to use because you can fold it into these things you've already developed so that you don't have to do these complex calculations so if you want to find this grid it is open source and you should look for the the paper titled molecular cross sections for high resolution spectroscopy of super earths warm neptunes and hot jupiters and the lead author on that is siddharth gandhi 
Now, on a similar vein, we saw another grid of models come out this month as well. So I just want to quickly touch on that. So you've got all of the grids of all of the data uh, and models that you could possibly want at your fingertips. So in a similar vein, we saw the an open source grid of pre-computed models for brown dwarf atmospheres. And these were computed using the Atmo framework and they termed it Atmo 2020. Now this grid uh, contains atmospheric models for and, and evolution models actually for Y and to T brown dwarfs. So this is for brown dwarf atmospheres, but you can also apply them to giant exoplanet atmospheres, especially those that are directly imaged. These would be very, very useful for those. Now, this grid of atmospheric models also includes with it that you can download uh, open source the, the temperature and pressure profiles that were used to compute it, as well as all of the chemistry and chemical profiles. Now they present three different grids, one with equilibrium chemistry and two using uh, free chemistry is what they call it, where they allow the vertical profile to change and mix that material more. So that changes what that spectrum might look like. And you can find that by looking for the paper by Phillips, Tremblin, Baraf et al. in 2020. So go find both of those grids. They have links to where you can download them uh, and play around. Uh, now, uh, a paper from another recent guest here on Exocast, uh, Dr. Aaron May. So you can check out Ex- Exocast 41B to hear more from Erin. Uh, now, along with uh, her colleague, uh, Emily Rauscher, um, she shone a light on one of the most pressing questions of exoplanet science right now, the transition between terrestrial and gassy compositions. So now we know that there's probably a radius limit for this process. It seems to be about 1.5 Earth radii. Um, and, you know, that's reflected in the relative dearth of planets in this size regime that we can find. But we don't know that much about... Uh, the process, right? It's not going to be a smooth cutoff, a smooth transition between a terrestrial and a, and a gassy planet. Um, and, you know, this raises the possibility that there are some transition planets out there, you know, maybe that we can spot them. Uh, the intermediate somewhere between Earth and Neptune and finding these, um, you know, might be really tough as we can't really tell what planets are made out of or how they're differentiated from just their bulk density alone. So really, and again, this comes down to wanting to detect the surface and the atmosphere and disentangle them, right? So again, uh, check out our our other two episodes from this month where where we talk about that. Highly relevant news this month. It is very highly relevant and a very cool paper, I, I thought as well. Um, so, you know, detecting the surface of the exoplanet is probably near impossible right now, as we as we touched on. But Dr. May suggests that, you know, using a method um, in which we take eclipse mapping to distinguish between the surface and the atmosphere might actually work. Um, the thickness of the atmosphere imparts a, a very strong signal on the on the ratio of the of the short wave, which is the incoming and the long wave outgoing radiation. So basically, the thicker the atmosphere, the less the contrast between the equatorial and the polar temperature. So if we can disentangle those those two um those two components, then we might be able to tell what's going on in the atmosphere, which is which is kind of cool. It gives us a shallower short wave amplitude. Uh, so I think a really cool paper in a way to try and push those limits a little bit further. Unfortunately, however, the signal that uh, they show in this paper is minuscule. It is uh, sub ppm. So actual detection of this as they as they as they rightly point out and as Erin pointed out on her twitter thread uh, is not within our current grasp but again it's one of those those techniques that maybe we hadn't initially thought about it's another way of maybe trying to push things down to to a lower limit and you know just investigate uh, what we can do with the technology that we have or maybe in the near future anyway 
Right, well, sticking with atmospheres, uh, modeling work from my former UEA colleague, Denis Sergeyev, uh, who's now, I think, at Exeter, and his team, uh, highlights the significant role of atmospheric circulation or rather our choice of how to parameterize, that is, you know, kind of estimate this complex process in our models uh, and that effect on the potential detectability of particularly tidally locked terrestrial planets. So they used a very powerful uh, Met Office unified model uh, and showed that using different methods of representing convection, so that is kind of the circulation of the atmosphere, could affect the day-night side thermal contrast. You know, when you're looking at your emission phase curves, that could result in warming up of the night side by, you know, maybe up to 30 Kelvin, which would reduce the contrast between those and maybe, you know, affect your interpretation of them. So, uh, you know, they noted that the, the choice of convection scheme that you use doesn't really seem to affect the climate that much, weirdly. Uh, they used a case study of TRAPPIST-1E and, and PROX-NB um, if you hold other things constant. And they even went further and actually didn't parameterize convection also. They fully modeled it with the physics, which I imagine was a great computational expense. Uh, and they found that using those convection parameterizations might actually overestimate how efficient atmospheres are at redistributing that heat, which, as I said, has implications for observations. You know, if, if we think that the atmospheres are better at moving heat around uh, than they actually are, that would, that would affect the, the, the temperature contrast between the night and the day side. Now, uh, a very a couple of very interesting papers landed on the archive on April 1st that caught my eye. Uh, the first, entitled Defining the Really Habitable Zone, finally laid out a habitable zone concept I think we can all agree on. A planet is only habitable if it's able to support that most British of summertime adult beverages, the gin and tonic, on their surface. Right, And I think that's something we can all agree on. Uh, they used a revolutionary method of relying on, and I quote, assumptions which are difficult, if not impossible, to test. Um, and the authors <laughs> concluded that planets within this really habitable zone might be early candidates for JWST. Again, I quote, because by the time that thing finally launches, we're all going to need a drink. I think that's, I think that's going to be the case no matter yeah, when this happens. Uh, as in another news article, uh, not April Fool's joke there. Thing has been delayed uh but i loved this paper and i know we talked about it for at our coffee times at bristol and i know that at exeter they were talking about it at their coffee times and it's brilliant just the footnotes alone are fantastic they've decided somehow uh to instead of using the word tree they fought to invent an acronym instead in what they say is a really quite something, even for astronomers. And the acronym they come up with for TREE is Uprightish Photosynthesizing Multicellular Life Form. I don't <laughs> know accurate. how you're supposed to say that uh, as an acronym, but uh, they, there's just so many things in here that are brilliant. Um, and I'm, I'm always up for a good GNT. Yeah, it's a very British. It's a very British paper. So British. Right? I think it contains a lot of British humour, <laughs> and I, I would highly recommend that anyone checks it out. It's a very accessible, you know, astronomy astronomy paper, and uh, and a lot of fun. Now, uh, another constant concern uh, for anyone working with or relying on mirrors and optics must be the detection of vampires, which, as we all know, are invisible to mirrors. It's a big problem. <laughs> Um, now, using data from one of Tessa's lesser-known instruments, which is a refractor as opposed to a reflector, so no worries there, the, uh, the authors used, um, used this, this instrument to search for vampiric signals in light curves, uh, and their paper, which also landed on April 1st, uh, reports an occurrence rate of space vampires to be with somewhere within 0-100%. Uh, 
which uh, is narrowing that down a, a little bit, I guess. Um, the analysis that they performed returned 3.9 billion potential transit signals, uh, of which a statistically indeterminate number were considered to be of space vampire origin. Uh, although the authors did note that the required signal to noise is actually 10 to the 15 higher than the expected signals. So take take that with a pinch of garlic, I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and with that, 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 brings, uh, that brings us to the end of the news for this month. Exocast. Okay, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, let us know what you thought of the episode on our social media, uh, at exo underscore cast on Twitter and on our Facebook page. And as always, you can find all of our episodes on our website, exocast.org, or on iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcasting apps. And keep an eye out for this month's other podcasts under the name Exocast 44B and C. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Exocast. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne is the Tess Chaops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org.